This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Shannon Bream. The fragile ceasefire in Gaza leads to a second round of hostage releases, including 13 Israelis, but still no Americans. Reunited at last with loved ones after several weeks in captivity in Gaza. Today has been a product of a lot of hard work and weeks of personal engagement. A brief ceasefire in place, but tensions on the ground remain, and many more hostages are still under Hamas control. I want to be clear. The war is continuing. We're on the ground in Israel with the latest. Plus, inflation nation. The high cost of the Thanksgiving holiday driving home voters' grim outlook on the economy. As Biden's approval numbers remain stubbornly low, we'll get White House reaction from Economic Council of Advisors Chair Jared Bernstein. Then... The tug of war over the president's foreign aid package drags on. We'll ask Republican Senator Tom Cotton about his party's calls for more security funding at the southern border. And Democratic Congressman Jake Auchincloss about the stalemate over the president's call for emergency wartime aid to both Israel and Ukraine. And a major victory for the far right in the Netherlands and days earlier, Argentina. Voters fed up with their elite political class's failure to curb inflation, homelessness, and uncontrolled migration. We'll ask our Sunday panel if this could foreshadow how voters here may vote in 2024. All right now on Fox News Sunday. from Fox News in Washington. Hamas had agreed to release another group of hostages today. We're standing by. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the White House has, quote, reason to believe at least one of three Americans held will be among them. We are currently in day three of a four-day pause in fighting. After delay on Saturday, the hostage for prisoners deal between Hamas and Israel did get back on track. Hamas promised to release a total of at least 50 Israeli hostages while Israel says it will release 150 Palestinian prisoners. President Biden is vowing to keep pressing for the release of all American hostages. We're going to bring in lawmakers from both sides of the aisle to discuss what comes next in the Israel-Hamas war. But we begin with Trey Yankst, who is live at Hostage Square in Tel Aviv, Israel. Hello, Trey. Hey, Shannon, good morning. Overnight for a second straight evening, Israelis breathing a sigh of relief. 13 hostages released as part of a broader ceasefire deal. It was not, though, without anticipation and uncertainty. The agreement nearly collapsing right before the transfer was set to take place. Qatari officials telling Fox News they were able to negotiate a path forward that ultimately had the hostages taken by the Red Cross to Egypt's Rafah crossing, where they were met by Israeli intelligence officers and then brought here to Israel. Hamas told Fox News the delay was over a disagreement on aid trucks. Israel had threatened to resume their bombing campaign if Hamas backed out of the deal. Now, out of the group last night, 12 were taken to the Sheba Medical Center in central Israel and one to the Soroka Hospital. 21-year-old Maya Regev was in more immediate need of medical attention after being shot 
50 days ago. The videos of families ret returning and reuniting, giving Israel hope and bringing the total to 26 hostages released as part of this ceasefire deal. Another group is expected to be freed tonight. And remember, they are being exchanged at a three to one ratio. 39 Palestinian prisoners were released on Saturday evening. The question, though, today, Shannon, is whether or not the fighting will resume. Regional sources telling Fox News today they believe there could be a possible extension to this ceasefire deal. But the days ahead will tell. Shannon. Trey Yinks reporting from Israel. Trey, we thank you and your team again. We're joined now by Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton, member of the Armed Services Committee. Great to have you back on Fox News Sunday. Thank you, Shannon. Good to be so, back with you. Let's start with this pause because there are folks who don't think it's been the best idea. Wall Street Journal, an opinion piece over there, says a ceasefire deprives Israel of military momentum and transfers the initiative to Hamas. Now that Israel has agreed to a short ceasefire, the Biden administration and its Qatari interlocutors will expect longer ceasefires. Hamas will remain armed and dangerous in Gaza and will use this ceasefire to regroup. But we have gotten dozens of hostages out. What do you make of it? Where do we go from here? Well, I don't want to second guess the Israeli government. They had near unanimous support across many different political parties and in their senior security leadership that this was the appropriate step to take. So I'm not going to second guess the Israeli government. But I have to say, it seems like President Biden puts more pressure on Israel than he does on Hamas and its hosts in Qatar. Part of the reasons why we got to this point where we had to have a four-day pause is the Biden administration has consistently, behind the scenes, insisted that Israel's government take steps that are clearly not in Israel's interest. For instance, providing fuel into Gaza, not just water or food or medicine, but fuel, which may as well be providing them with ammunition. I'm also very frustrated that we have not seen the release of a single American hostage. Perhaps there'll be one today, but apparently Hamas is so contemptuous of President Biden and American power that they feel the imperative to release Filipinos and Thai hostages before they release American hostages. That's just one small example of the weakness that President Biden has projected around the world that has resulted in things like Americans being taken hostage or Iran attacking Americans more than 70 times now since or over the last month mm -hmm. or the fall of Kabul uh, in 2021. So to the point about Americans still being held there, Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips, by the way, mounting a run against President Biden in the primary lane with Democrats, he says he thinks we should be using U.S. forces on the ground potentially to get those Americans out. Here's what he says. By now, I would have expected American special forces to perhaps play a hand in extracting them. I think it's absurd, uh, shocking, and dismaying that six weeks later we still have American hostages held by a terror organization in Gaza. Uh, I'm happy for the Israelis, don't get me wrong. Hamas should release all hostages. But the fact that we have Americans sitting in Gaza right now held hostage is appalling and should be addressed immediately. You have served in uniform overseas. What do you make about this call for using U.S. Special Forces to get our folks out? Well, we should certainly be open to that. I mean, we have elite special operations forces who are specifically trained in hostage rescue. I, I do think we have to be deferential to, Israelis, to the Israeli government and the Israeli defense forces about the tactical situation on the ground. But if American military forces are called upon and can provide a viable solution to get out American citizens and the citizens of Israel or other nations, then we have to be open to that. But again, it's not just those small special operations units that we have trained. We have two aircraft carriers in the region. We've increased the number of troops and aircraft we have in the region. Yet Hamas is still so contemptuous of President Biden that it hasn't yet released American hostages. This would have never happened under Donald Trump or Ronald Reagan. In fact, if you recall, 
Jimmy Carter had a hostage crisis with Iran, Hamas's patron, for over 400 days. Iran released those hostages the day Ronald Reagan took office because they were so scared of what Ronald Reagan might do to them. You don't see that kind of fear of President Biden from Hamas or Iran or, frankly, anyone around the world. But you talk about our assets in the region. We talk about our troops in uniform in the region. How worried are you about that expanding into something broader that we get drawn into? Because I don't think the American people have a taste for that. Well, unfortunately, Shannon, it's already expanded. Since Joe Biden took office, Iran has attacked American positions in the Middle East, I think now over 150 times. And just in the last month, it's over 70 times. We've only hit back a few times. When we do hit back, it's almost always at empty proxy warehouses or maybe proxy forces in Iraq and Syria. It seems like the president wants to go out of his way to avoid Iranian casualties. That but what targets would you suggest? I would, target, I would target Iranians who are operating in Iraq and in Syria. I would also send a clear message to Iran, if these attacks don't stop immediately, then we'll begin to threaten their assets. Like Ronald Reagan, when he sank half of Iran's navy for attacking a U.S. Navy ship. Look, the president keeps talking about fear of escalation. Mm -hmm. Fear of escalation ensures escalation. The way to stop it is to establish escalation dominance over a terror-supporting regime like Iran. You know, it, Sean Connery's character, Jim Malone in The Untouchables, said to Kevin Costner's character, Elliot Ness, about how to handle the Chicago mob, if they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue. That's not just the Chicago way. That's the way of the Middle East. And President Biden doesn't appear to understand that. But do we get drawn into something akin to World War III? Is that what Hamas wanted all along? I mean, clearly they didn't want Israel to achieve some of these peace talks that they were having that the U.S. was involved in as well. But to, you know, get militarily involved, kinetically involved with their landmass is a different situation. That's another now, level. No, Shannon, like what Ronald Reagan did when he sank half of Iran's navy, it didn't lead to an open, outright war. It, in fact, it ended the Iran-Iraq war, which had been waging for more than eight years because Iran was so scared of Ronald Reagan. After Donald Trump directed the killing of Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, Iran's terrorist mastermind, Iran pulled in its horns for the rest of the Trump era. The way to stop these attacks is not to be fearful and hesitant and cautious in a response, but massive retaliation to make it clear we will not tolerate these attacks on Americans. Otherwise, I fear we're going to see a mass casualty attack against American forces in the region. Well, you know that there is a, a strong sentiment in that region that is blaming the U.S. as well, pointing fingers at us. Washington Post says this. Political analysts in the Middle East called Washington's support for Israel's war a reckless position that doesn't account for the long-term diplomatic, security, and economic effects of alienating a region where rivals, namely China, which you and I have talked about many times, are carving deeper inroads. More importantly, they said, the war has toppled the United States from its moral high ground. So do you worry about the longer-term impacts of alienating many in the Arab world, especially the younger generation who clearly does not think the U.S. is is on the, the right side of this conflict. Life in the Middle East is not a church picnic. What you need more than anything is iron will and crushing force. And what I fear most threatens American interest in stability in the region is American weakness. Arab leaders want to be partners with a strong America and frankly with a strong Israel because the thing they fear most is Iran and its terror proxies like its paramilitary groups in Iraq and Syria or Hamas or Hezbollah or the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which President Biden took off the terror, terrorist uh, list in his early days in office. That kind of weakness and the weakness we've seen towards Iran is what's going to imperil American interest and lives in the region, not being hesitant or, or cautious or showing restraint in the face of attacks on American troops and citizens in the region and, and this massacre of Israelis on October 7th. 
Um, you've got a lot ahead of you as you come back from this break. Um, finding fights over Ukraine, Israel, the border, all of that. Um, what are your hopes that that comes together? Well, for the last two years, President Biden has showed that he seems to care more about Ukraine's borders than he cares about America's borders. We Republicans care about both. We want to secure our border. We want to stop the flow of illegal immigrants in this country and the crime and the drugs and the potential terrorism it could open this country up to. At the same time, we want to help Ukraine resist Russia's war of unprovoked aggression. So in return for providing additional funding for Ukraine, we have to have significant and substantial reforms to our border policy, specifically asylum and parole, the processes that are being abused at our border for millions of illegal migrants to come to this country over the last three years. We'll talk to our next guest, too, to see if he thinks you guys can make any bipartisan progress on that. Senator, thank you for coming in. Thank nice you. Good to see you. Our joining me now, Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jake Auchincloss. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks for having me on, Shannon. Okay, so let's start here, too. Uh, you've said a ceasefire is not a good idea until Hamas is destroyed, but I want to talk to you about this specific pause. Again, that Wall Street Journal piece says this, the ceasefire's terms allow Hamas to extend this truce by releasing 10 hostages a day as the possibility of a permanent truce nears and as Hamas starts to trade adult, male, and military hostages, the group's demands will rise. The U.S. will pressure Israel to release hundreds of Palestinian terrorists has the pause been a good or a bad idea, in your opinion? And what are your concerns with this conflict moving forward? There's no such thing as good in this situation when there are still hostages being held in captivity. But there is progress, and this is progress. Hostages are being released. Humanitarian aid is coming in for Palestinian civilians. The Israeli Defense Forces are able to regroup as they prepare for operations to the south, where uh, the bolus of Hamas leadership that's still in Gaza seems to be. Uh, and it's a testament to the president's strength and sagacity in ignoring calls for a ceasefire that would have denied Israel the leverage they needed to secure this deal. Uh, but Israel is right that this is the middle, not the end. They had two objectives going into this conflict. One is to rescue the hostages. There are still hostages being held captive. And two was to dismantle Hamas, and Hamas is still coherent. So they need to be prepared to turn south and to resume military operations. And I think they're going to have support from the American body politic in doing that. I, I represent an ideologically diverse district. I have a county that voted Republican. I have some of the bluest zip codes in the country. Three months ago, this district was pretty united in opposition to Prime Minister Netanyahu's actions on judicial reform and settlement expansion in the West Bank. But now there is relative consensus that Israel has a right and responsibility to defend itself and to protect its civilians, uh, even while recognizing that Netanyahu's hard right cabinet has made things unnecessarily difficult with their actions in the West Bank. So I, I think Israel should continue and resume these military operations at the expiration of the truth. Truce, and I think the, uh, the broad American electorate will be behind them. So there's some conflict within your party over this whole thing. The New Yorker has this headline, How Israel is Splitting the Democrats. The Democratic coalition once seemed united in its staunch, unquestioning support for the country. Today, that consensus seems to be cracking. How would you describe what's going on within the party? Because some of this is very happening very publicly. There are outliers, for sure. And the president has been wise to ignore those calls for ceasefire, which were reckless and misguided. Uh, and largely those outliers are speaking for their own political ends. 
But there is broad consensus amongst Democratic policymakers that President Biden has been drawing on his 50 years of foreign policy experience to walk a narrow tightrope over a wide chasm uh, quite effectively. Now, that's in sharp contrast to the Republican Party over Ukraine. This is the party that, as we heard from Senator Cotton, likes to invoke Ronald Reagan, the, the man who helped liberate U Ukraine from Russia. They're now prepared under the leadership of Donald Trump to hand Ukraine right back over to Russia. They are deeply divided by the leader but, of but, their party. But, but wait, and, just and a second there. that is the contrast to, to, that is most critical. Oh, but, but to be fair, um, they have voted for aid again and again in the House and the Senate, Republicans. Um, there is a split, of course, within the party as there is within yours on the issue of Israel. I mean, we've got Senator Sanders out there saying that no more blank checks to Israel. He thinks that aid should be conditional. I know that you have said you didn't think aid should be conditional, um, regardless of whether it's under a Democrat or, or Republican administration. You talk about the president's deep foreign policy experience, but it's one of the areas that our polling shows people don't trust him on. And when it comes to the issue of Iran specifically and how he's dealing with them, our brand new polls shows that 70 percent of Americans think that he's been too accommodating. Um, like Senator Cotton, you have served in uniform. You know about these attacks on our troops at last count, at least 73 of them. What should he be doing differently with respect to Iran? So, first of all, this administration has been tough on Iran. They have rolled out almost 50 new sets of sanctions that have helped lead to almost 50% inflation in the Iranian economy. Iran is desperate right now. They have also advanced the Abraham Accords. And the thing that Iran fears more than military action by the United States, more even than economic action from the United States, is political isolation through the Abraham Accords. And that was a large uh, near-term catalyst for Hamas's attack on October 7th. So the senator simply isn't correct that the administration has not been tough on Iran. But if we were to follow the uh, Republican Party's war path in the Middle East, where we would end up with is yet another failed forever war in that region. I served in 2012 in Afghanistan. I saw the futility, the expense of wars without a political endgame. The last thing America needs is to go back into that muck and blood of conflict in the Middle East. The better thing to do, the thing that I saw when I commanded special operations in Panama to help train our allies there, is to work by and with fellow democracies as they fight on the front lines, to support Israel as they fight against Hamas in Gaza, to keep that to a one-front war as opposed to opening up other fronts uh, against Hezbollah or against, excuse me, against Iran directly, uh, to support Ukraine as they fight against Russia, to support t Taiwan as it prepares uh, for increased Chinese aggression. The president is standing with democracy and he's working by and with allies, and that is smart military strategy. But there are a number of GOP senators who have reached out to ask why this administration isn't using other things at its disposal, like sanctions. Uh, a letter to the president back on November 16th, they say the world is now seeing the direct result of allowing uh, Iran's oil revenues to grow and unfreezing billions of dollars in extraterritorial bank accounts. We must prioritize enforcing all economic sanctions. So raises the question, why aren't we and why shouldn't we be? We are. The president Not to the has extent. been seizing Iranian oil exports. They have... Uh, forced Iran to be selling their oil on the black market where they're not recovering the majority of the total revenue from those sales. They've expanded the number of sanctions against individuals. More than 400 different entities or individuals, including the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps for human rights violations and drone exports. This administration is economically isolating Iran at the same time as they are building 
uh, greater Arab cohesion with Israel through the Abraham Accords. And again, that is the thing that Iran actually fears much more than a military strike from the United States, is isolation from the success of the Abraham Accords. That is why Hamas launched on October 7th its assault against Israel. And it's why that we, we need to continue to isolate Iran uh, from the broader uh, the, Middle East diplomatic accords. You mentioned accords. the Abraham Accords and, m- let me give multiple you an example. times. But, but let me ask you, do you credit the Trump administration with getting those done? The Trump administration obviously was in, was in power when those got done, and Netanyahu really was the prime mover behind those. Uh, but, yes, it was, it, was a, it was a successful initiative that President Biden has helped strengthen. And what we have seen now is that instead of launching military assaults against every toxic regime in the Middle East, which would create you know, six new wars by next weekend, the president has been... Uh, transacting with countries like Qatar, which has funded Hamas just as Iran has, to help rescue these hostages. In the Middle East, you don't have good choices. You have tough policymaking uh, criteria. And what the president has done is both resist calls for a ceasefire from, from the left while in, resist calls for escalating into a full-blown war from the right. He is walking a central statesmanlike path. Well, you are correct always in saying that there are no easy choices in the Middle East. Um, Congressman Auchincloss, we thank you for your time and for your time in uh, uniform for us as well. Sir, thank you. Good to be with you. All right, this Thanksgiving, a big reminder to Americans about the cost of inflation with that turkey dinner coming in with a big price tag. Up next, we're going to talk to Jared Bernstein from the Council of Economic Advisors about the current state of the U.S. economy and whether Americans have any reasons to be optimistic about the future. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Biden has been monitoring all the newest developments out of the Middle East. So far, no American hostages have been released during this planned pause between Hamas and Israel. But the White House is hoping that could soon change, soon as today. We turn now to Lucas Tomlinson, who's traveling with the president in Nantucket. Hello, Lucas. Shannon, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says he has reason to believe that at least one American hostage, four-year-old Abigail Adan, will be released today. The president last night, like the rest of America, says he remains hopeful. As the second group of hostages was released from Gaza late last night, President Biden and his family were doing some shopping on Small Business Saturday in Nantucket, where outrage over his Israel policy followed him to the island. Most Americans are just as angry over the state of the economy. 89% of Americans are extremely or very concerned about inflation and higher prices. And only 20% of Americans polled think the economy is in excellent or good shape. 
Nearly 8 in 10 rate the economy as only fair or poor. Ahead of Thanksgiving, Biden tweeted that gas prices are down $1.70 from their peak. But today, gas prices remain 37% higher than the day he took office. Home sales are now at 13-year lows. Interest rates are at 23-year highs. American credit card debt is now over $1 trillion for the first time in American history. Despite these troubling economic indicators, the president has long insisted his policies are working. Bidenomics is just another way of saying the American dream. Bidenomics is just another way of saying restore the American dream. Bidenomics is just another way of saying restore the American dream. The oldest president in U.S. history also continues to face questions about his age, even here in Nantucket. Mr. President, are you too old to be running for re-election? Stupid. Why is Donald Trump beating you in the latest poll? President Biden faces the lowest approval rating of his presidency. We hope to hear from President Biden before he takes off to go back to Washington. Shannon. All right, Lucas on the road with President Nantucket. Thank you very much. Joining us now is chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Jared Bernstein. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you, Shannon. We always love having you. Listen, you know we always do polls. You just heard what Lucas was reporting there. I want to get to this specific one. We asked Americans if they see signs that the economy has hit the worst and is turning around. 67% of voters that we surveyed said no. They actually think the worst is still to come. The conference board shares that assessment forecasting that U.S. economic growth will buckle under mounting headwinds early next year, real disposable personal income growth is flat, pandemic savings are dwindling, and household debt is rising. I know you're going to want to paint a rosy picture, but for most people, their experience is not good. Well, I want to try to paint a realistic picture that's nuanced, that takes into account everything you just said, but also reflects not just what, on people, uh, what people are saying, which we have to listen to. They are the best arbiters of their economic conditions but also what they're doing. So we're just coming out of a Black Friday uh, that is already setting records for online buying between 10 and 16 billion uh, for, uh, for Black Friday online. We are looking at consumer spending that's been driving this economy forward, posting growth rates that are you know, north of 5%. Uh, we have an unemployment rate that's been below 4% for 21 months. Now, what that means in a period where inflation has come down by two-thirds, it peaked at 9%, it's now 3.2. And wages have not kept up. So real wages have grown. Real wages, in other words, wages are beating prices now. So is disposable income, Starting by to, the way. But for most of that time, they have not. Correct. So th- I'm talking about the last four or five months. So that speaks to both, I think, you know, my argument and perhaps your argument. My argument is that we are moving on the right track, but we have a lot more work to do. The question needs to be, in regard to all these polls you just cited, are we moving in a direction that will reach the American people, give them more buying power, continue to see actual declines in gas prices? By the way, you, you put up a slide there, 379 for gas prices. That is a stale picture, Shannon. Okay. The, the average Lucas gas price is 325. Down. Yes. Well, listen, I need to find that. You know, around here in D.C., we're not going to find that. But hopefully out in the country, people are doing a little bit better. You talk about spending and Black Friday, which is always a, a good indicator to look at where people are. But we've got this headline from The Wall Street Journal this morning. American borrowers are getting closer to maxing out. They're talking about how close people are to getting to the very last of what they have in savings or at their credit limit. So still spending, yes, but that is going to come due at some point. They say delinquencies are way up between September and October as well. So I think, look, credit is tighter because interest 
interest rates are higher, and interest rates are higher in part because of the uh, fight against uh, inflation, which, as again, has been uh, a successful fight in terms of taking down the rate of inflation. But it's also important to look at actual prices. Okay, so the gas price peaked at $5 a gallon in June of 2022. This morning, I checked it before I came on, $3.25. $1.75 per gallon off of its peak. Now, you fill up a 15-gallon tank, that's about 25 bucks. Do that three or four times a month, $75, $100 of breathing room. If okay, you but when you guys took over, it was what, 239 well, okay, and, and, so and we're up, yeah, you know, and, and if you go back to 2016, it was 170. So these prices do go up over time. So under our watch, the price of gas has He's come up. from its from, yeah. So look, <laughs> after the invasion of uh, uh, of Ukraine, the gas price spiked. Okay, so that was something that happened over there that uh, you know affected the whole world, affected global supply chains, affected energy. Since that peak. President Biden got to work, released uh, hundreds of millions of barrels of, of oil from which, the Strategic Reserve. Which, by the way, Reserve, when are we going to rebuild took, that? Which took the price down to three twenty-five this morning. There are sixteen states where gas is below three three dollars a gallon. Airplane tickets are down okay, thirteen cent, thirteen uh, percent, which is great news, especially this weekend. Right. But you mentioned the Spro, so I want to know yeah. because we keep getting these questions so we about what it's going to fill, refill. We've started to refill the Spro. One of the things that uh, the president did was. Uh, uh, ensure that when we, when we go out to buy barrels of oil to refill the spro, they'll cost a lot less than what we sold them for. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've started to refill uh, with, with oil uh, prices around 75 a barrel. Remember, we sold that, that oil for about 95 a barrel. So there's a little arbitrage there from the uh, commander in chief. Uh, so look, I, I think if the question needs to be not are those polls right or wrong. People are telling us how they feel. Mm -hmm. We have to look at two nuanced points. One. Are we moving in a direction that will reach the American worker, the American consumer? Are real wages rising? Yes. Is the job market tight as it's ever been? Yes. Is inflation down two-thirds from its peak? Absolutely. Are prices coming down for gas, for airline tickets, for car rentals, for eggs, uh, for groceries at the uh, lowest inflation in two years? All of that is a yes. So we are moving in the right direction. We've got more work to do for it to reach average Americans, who, by the way, are telling us through their consumer behavior, uh, that they're feeling pretty good about their own financial conditions. Well, they don't when you ask them about polling, though. I want to play something from a woman who's gone viral this weekend. She is a mom. She's a nurse. And here's what she says about the reality of her situation as an everyday American. I feel like my husband and I are doing everything right. We both have good jobs. I'm a nurse. I'm a registered nurse. I work full time. He works full-time. Somebody has to do something to change this because like, I make good money. He makes good money. We don't live above our means. She says they're actually living less than paycheck to paycheck. I mean, about over 60% of Americans say that's how they're living. We've got this stat also, a new poll from the Wall Street Journal. Only 36% of voters think that the American dream will actually be a reality for them. What is your message to that woman? It's very important to speak particularly to someone who's going through that kind of pain. And I think the message there is two things. One, we are working hard to deliver precisely what she's asking for. And we're seeing signs. We're seeing shoots of, of, of improvement in those areas. Real wages are now growing. And they've been growing not just for a week or two, but for four or five or six months. We're seeing, yes, higher uh, interest rates, but also 
uh, people's, pay, people's disposable income has been rising. So their debt service payments, what they're paying to service their lending, is actually quite low. Now, if uh, another thing, and the second thing I would tell to, to her is if you actually ask somebody like that, and I think you should because it's important to flesh this out, what do they think of the fact that we've capped insulin prices at $35 a month? What about giving Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices? What about tax incentives for manufacturing jobs? What about capping out-of-pocket prescription drug costs? All of those are in play. They are legislated, Shannon. They are in the field. And I don't think some of the folks that we're talking to here know enough about that. Those well, issues poll at 80-plus percent. And they, they affect very specific groups of people, and it is excellent news for those folks. Seniors? But Exactly. I mean, everybody out there is struggling, but this woman feels like she represents, and the, the response to her has been person after person saying, I'm in the same boat with you. She said she had, you know, two or $300 to make it another week and a half to the next paycheck. And for some people, they said, man, I'd love to have two or $300. So here I think we have to think about the following. You know, President Biden likes to say, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Mm -hmm. So I just took you through five minutes of everything we're doing to try mm -hmm. to help precisely that person and everybody like her, whether it's raising real wages, keeping the job market tight, bringing down inflation, lowering costs of gas, of groceries, what uh, do we hear from the other side? Tax cuts for rich people, giveaways to big pharma, you know, helping wealthy tax cheats evade taxes to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. That's who they're fighting for. She okay. is who we're fighting for. And we're going to keep doing it well, until we reach her. Well, she feels like, well, she says she's not political, but the average American out there and in all of these polls, including Democrats, say that they're not doing well. And so... Listen, we're always cheering for the, the American economy to be good for everybody. Um, it benefits everyone. The only on thing down. we know how to do is keep our head down, build on the progress we've made so far, and try to reach people precisely like her. Now, the, the data well, are moving in her direction. Clearly, she doesn't feel it yet. Does not. But I'm confident she will if we keep going. All right, Jared. Always good to see you. You too. Thanks for coming in. All right, a new slew of polls showing things are moving in the wrong direction for President Biden's reelection effort. We're going to bring the Sunday panel to debate the growing calls within his own party for him to step aside as others in the party say, stop talking about it. Quit publicly criticizing the party's leader. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Leave that we need to do better, who all believe we need change, and who all who recognize that the polls are saying that President Biden is going to lose to Donald Trump, enter the race just like I did. The water is warm. Mm, and a Minnesota Democratic Congressman, presidential hopeful Dean Phillips, encouraging other members of his party to join him, jump into the race for the White House. It's time now for our Sunday group, USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page. Horace Cooper, legal commentator and chairman of Project 21. Heritage Foundation President Kevin Roberts, Emory Hart, former State Department spokesperson. Welcome to you all fresh off your Thanksgiving. Thank you for spending part of your weekend with us. Okay, his uh, Congressman Phillips there, who's not going to run for re-election, full-time going after the White House. Um, Politico headline follows his words. The polls keep getting worse for Biden. Trump's vote share in national polls is higher than at any time in the past year. 
Marie, that's not good news for the White House. I knew this was coming to me first this morning. <laughs> Look, national polls a year out from an election, we should all take them with a little bit okay, of a grain of salt. Okay, but what about, before you go further, what about the state head-to-head polls with Biden sure. and Trump? So a lot of those are pretty close still within the margin of error. I would remind people that President Obama, who I worked for in his re-election, had very similar polls against Mitt Romney at the same time. I do think that Democrats should take these polls with some caution, right, as a warning sign. They need to get out there. They need to make the case that we just heard Jared Bernstein making about the economic news that is impacting people every single day about what a Joe Biden second term would look like. They have some work to do, so they should take these as a warning sign. But I firmly believe that Donald Trump has a ceiling on the number of people that will vote for him. We see that in poll after poll. And every time Donald Trump has been at the top of the Republican Party since he won in 2016, Democrats have wildly overperformed. So Democrats sitting here today will say, we hope Donald Trump is the nominee because a Joe Biden, Donald Trump head to head is, is, I think, pretty good for Democrats. I think they're probably a little nervous if it's Nikki Haley or someone else. But elections are choices. Mm -hmm. And and I think Democrats are confident that Joe Biden is the only one that's ever beat Donald Trump and he can do it again. Well, so you have these Democrats out there like Congressman Phillips, who say who are saying we don't feel confident in that. So we're going to run. We think we need to get serious about this. The Hill has this headline pipe down. Biden allies step up calls for Dems to rally around the president. Susan, a lot of them are out there saying, stop talking about this publicly, about where he's not doing well and yeah. how you can beat him. He said the water was warm. Actually, the water's pretty cold if you're in Democratic <laughs> uh, circles, because they're, they're, I think that most Democratic strategists and office holders assume that Joe Biden's going to be the nominee, that you're not going to succeed in having someone else be nominated. So he's the guy you need to back, even though. Uh, what Dean Phillips is doing is articulating what a lot of Democrats, some of those same Democrats say behind the scenes, which is that Joe Biden has a significant problem in convincing people he's not too old, that things like the situation we see in the East, a big challenge for Biden with some of his base voters, including young people, mm-hmm. African-Americans and others, that he really needs to get enthusiastic about him if he's going to win. Yeah, our polling is showing he's losing significantly in a number of those categories to, to President Trump, meaning just he's losing. There's an attrition of people away from him and independence, black voters, Hispanic voters, and many of the key groups that he needs, that anyone needs to hold together to win the White House. I want to go to the other side of the aisle because um, there is plenty of angst over there as well. Um, there has been reports about turmoil within the DeSantis camp this week. Um, the Haley folks noting her rise in the polls, happy to pounce on that, saying poll after poll shows Nikki Haley is the best challenger to Donald Trump and Joe Biden. She's second in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and is the only candidate with the momentum to go the distance. I mean, um, or she's taken a lot of heat because she's surging at just the right time for her. Well, she presents sort of the old guard of the uh, Republican Party. Um, the less populist, more uh, internationalist wing of the party is rallying around her. Now, the question is, is that enough to affect the outcome of the election? If you ask me, it looks like the cake is baked. And how it's going to come out is what it's been looking like for the last six months. Well, the DeSantis folks are not willing to concede that. Um, they're firing back their campaign spokesman, spokesman saying this. The data is clear that Nikki Haley has no path to the nomination and every dollar spent on her candidacy is an in-kind for the Trump campaign. Um, Kevin, her team wants to point to those head-to-head polls. She does pull the best against President Biden, but they say the DeSantis team, there's no way for her to actually get to that matchup. I think that's an important point, obviously, from my perspective in terms of conservative policies and ideas. I think any of the three remaining major contenders on the Republican side will do very well. But to your question, Shannon, having been to Iowa twice in the last few months, 
DeSantis is in the strongest position there. He's stronger in Iowa than the Trump campaign and the Haley campaign. In New Hampshire, however, and this is to the point about this being state by state, Ambassador Haley is, has sort of caught fire. She's doing very well. What's the next primary? As you know, mm -hmm. South Carolina. I think this is a race that probably gets to at least Super Tuesday. I'm a little bit of an outlier in saying that. Great respect to a former president whom I still love. But the point is this primary is one that has come to be focused on policies and ideas. I think that's going to serve all three candidates well. And it, when the Iowa caucuses conclude and the New Hampshire primary concludes, the Republicans will be well serve by having a contested race. It will be cold and we will probably all be there <laughs> at some point. Okay, panel, stick around. Much more to discuss. Two right-wing candidates sweep to victory on the international stage and the world is taking notice. But do those wins abroad signal anything about what's ahead here for our 2024 elections? We'll debate that next. How does he have to gone from kind of, well, we knew this and it didn't work and we've got 185% inflation to thinking, what the heck, we'll try this guy. Some of the reaction to right-wing populist candidate Javier Millet shocking many in his bid. He won to become the next president of Argentina. Days later, another far-right populist, Geert Wilders, also pulled off a big victory in the Netherlands. Though there's still a lot of work for him to try to put together a coalition government now. And many are wondering if any of these wins point to clues about how American voters feel in 2024. We are back now with our panel. I want to read something from the Wall Street Journal editorial board characterizing this, saying the big winner, Geert Wilders, a veteran right-wing campaigner, the, the freakout that his victory has triggered across Europe is something to behold. Kevin, they're scared of this guy, and they're worried about the implications of some of these other wins. They are, and it's glorious. Geert Wilders is the Nigel Farage of the Netherlands, and that's a compliment, which is to say that if you spend time talking to people around the world, Shannon, especially in Europe and Latin America, as we saw with Malay and Argentina, they are frustrated by what Americans are frustrated here, which is that the elites not only take our self-governance and ruin our human flourishing, but they are really arrogant about it when we complain. And so it is glorious because it shows that we are about to turn the corner after decades of European centralized control in Brussels, too much centralized power in Washington. For us on the political right in the United States, we believe the 2020s is going to be a golden era, not just here, but around the world. Okay, well, they do not share your view at the EU. They're very worried. That. They are very worried about um, what could be the impact of some of these wins, obviously, on what they're trying to hold together. Um, Politico notes this. Migration was a dominant issue in the Dutch election for EU politicians. It remains a pressing concern. As migrant numbers continue to rise, so too has support for far-right parties in many countries in Europe. And, of course, that's certainly an issue that we see playing out here as well. Uh, the illegal immigration problem is something that resonates with voters generally. And the elites have decided that they know better than voters generally. Now, one of the things that uh, the EU is concerned about is, will there be an exit? Will there be a vote to have the Netherlands leave the EU? Why is that concerning to them? Because the policies that are imposed by the elites are not popular. They're strong medicine for your own good. The thing about being an adult is that you get to make your own decisions, and a lot of countries are coming to that conclusion. I think that's true here in the United States as well. 
Well, as we look at the migration issue here, obviously there's a bipartisan agreement that the border is not in a good place. It is chaotic. We're hitting record numbers every month now. We've got some polling on this. The, the president's job performance on both national security and immigration, and as those things are linked, you can see he is way upside down on both of those, and, and disapproval far outweighing those who approve. And when we talk about the situation at the U.S. border, our latest polling shows that 85 percent of Americans think it's an emergency or a major problem. Marie, that's a difficult, another difficult topic for this White House to campaign on. It is. I think you've seen them surge resources to the border. They're taking this quite seriously. But when we talk about these, quote, far-right candidates, I think we need to be clear. These are not just ideological policy differences. These are all candidates, including Donald Trump, by the way. They model themselves off of him, who are calling free and fair elections rigged. They are taking away women's health care. They are calling immigrants scum. In this debate about how to secure our borders, call me old fashioned, but I think that you can bring down inflation, secure our borders, go after elites if you're unhappy with them without being racist and misogynist and doing all these extreme things. Well, then do so, it. So I think President Biden is actually. Well, but inflation these polls show that people. Its, so I think we just need to be. But the polls show people don't think he's doing it. So, I, Shannon, I think we just need to be very clear when we talk about these right wing parties and we talk about elites, and we talk about how to bring down inflation and how to secure our border, that this shift to the right globally, which we're talking about today, is extreme. And it is taking us back to a place where people have fewer rights, people, particularly minorities and women, and, that, and then I think in this upcoming election, that's the case the Biden team will make, that you may, you may want inflation to come down faster, you may want the economy to grow more quickly, but doing that on the backs of Donald Trump and his extremism isn't the way to go. But no, that's the global trend here. No issue more difficult for this White House than the issue of immigration. And it is one in which we see the, the, the White House shifting policy somewhat, more willing to embrace uh, border security measures to include that uh, in the in No, we're the talking about proposals. building the wall. Um, and a, a, ch a change also in the, Democratic, in the Democratic Party, Democratic voters, you see, uh, Democratic governors, Democratic mayors of big cities mm -hmm. saying this is a problem we need to address in a new and different way. So I think there is no, you know, there is no issue that more animates Donald Trump voters than the issue of immigration. And we're seeing this in in the Netherlands, in France, in Germany, elsewhere as well. Well, and when you talk about the kind of the mood of the country, there are other things that are going to factor in, too. They're worried about the economy. They're worried about the border. Now, Gallup has this new poll out that says 40 percent of Americans, the most in three decades, say they would be afraid to walk alone at night within a mile of their home. This is the exact reason why I said just earlier, then do it. If all of the policies could be done without the woke requirements that the left wants to impose, then they should have been focusing on doing those things. The truth of the matter is that people are going to have to make a choice. And you take the right or the left. If you don't like all of the rough edges of the right, you look over here at the left and you hate the craziness of it and it makes it a lot more attractive to go to the right. That's what we're seeing in Europe, and that's what we're seeing in America, too. I mean, Kevin, what do you make about what Marie has spelled out? Lesser rights for people, especially on the issue of abortion and other things. Um, respond to that. Uh, respectfully disagree with my friend Marie, <laughs> because <surprised>. the, the, <laughs> the, the, the people are feeling, both in Europe and in the United States, Shannon, that their rights have been taken away by climate policies whose proposed solutions are far worse than the, the problem. And secondly, migration. I mean, people in Europe and, and America are saying that's where rights have really been abridged. Therefore, there is a great frustration that I think is going to bear wonderful fruit. To Horace's point, 
to people on the right, leaders who actually can talk about common sense solutions. All right, we got to leave it there, panel. We will see you next Sunday. Thank you very much. Up next, emotional reunions for families as hostages are being released in the Israel-Hamas war, but there are still many, many families who are waiting for their loved ones to come home. Fox News correspondent Alex Hogan has the very latest. latest. She's going to give us a live update right after this quick break. When you get a chip in your windshield... There is new video coming in of the second group of Israeli hostages released last night. Here you can see them being transported to the Sheba Medical Center in Israel. More hostages are expected to be released today, and there are hopes that finally there could be Americans among them. Fox News correspondent Alex Hogan is live on the ground in Jerusalem with the very latest. Hello, Alex. Hi, Shannon. It is day three of the ceasefire, and it now appears that wheels are in motion for the release of today's hostages, and U.S. officials say that they expect that at least one American could be among them. It's the moments families here in Israel wondered if they would ever see again. Nine-year-old Ochad running into his father's arms. Emily's first hug with her dad, who initially believed she was dead. Yoni Asher holding his three girls once more. In a separate broker deal, Hamas has freed 14 Thai hostages and one Filipino. Thousands crowded the streets to welcome the hostages home. The families who were once strangers now speak as one. We need to continue and not stop our fight till all kidnapped are released. They did not. Doctors say most of the hostages appear healthy as the stories finally come out of what happened to them. Ruth Munder says she was able to watch and listen to the news while captive. That's how she learned her son had been killed. Adina Moshe's family says she spent her time in total darkness, disconnected. She didn't know her husband was dead and had no clue about the war. But now they're home, giving a glimpse of hope to hundreds of families that their loved ones, too, could still be alive. In exchange for those moments, Israel has released 78 Palestinian prisoners, emotional reunions, as those families welcome home their loved ones as well. Shannon. Alex, thank you very much for that update. We'll continue to follow your coverage. Next week, Fox News Sunday, you don't want to miss our special, The State of Defense. We're going to come to you live from the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, the site of the Reagan National Defense Forum. We will have experts on hand to discuss the top military and defense issues facing the country and the world right now as they are multiple. That is it for us today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.